saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So, after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let us ask God to bless his word, read and preached. Our Father, please open our eyes to see, our ears to hear. May we be the ones silent before the word of God knowing that we are being spoken to from above and not from below. Help us to see these divine realities for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I was doing a little bit of sermon prep on the way into uh, preach this morning in Vancouver uh, with my uh, family in the car, uh, part of them at least. And... Uh, I think it was foreigner. I want to know what love is. Um, trying to get an idea of how uh, the world understands love. And I have to say there's some good lines in that song. Some very good lines. It's uh, a song I commend to you on a Friday night with a glass of wine and perhaps no one around and you just want to enjoy a relaxing time. But uh, enough about that. Um, what we typically go through most uh, days are different definitions of love that variously crop up, either explicitly or implicitly. There may be times when you're driving in the car and you are singing along to a song, and invariably they are often about love. If they're country music, they're about losing love. But the point is, uh, we are often inundated with what love is. We're told what love is to all types of people, how we have to love, how we can't hate this and love that, and the world is constantly trying to conform you to its own definitions of love, and without making too grandiose of a statement before you, I wish to say I'm going to tell you today what true love is. 
And if you have no other blessing this morning from the sermon, I want you to be able to walk out and say, you know what, I woke up and I came to hear what love was and I found out what love was. And uh, this can change your life because then you can stop believing all of the false portrayals of love, all the half-truths about love, even in the church. Now, before we get there, you'll notice there is a distinct lack of love involving someone named Judas Iscariot. This troubles Jesus immensely. We are told he is troubled. He's vexated in his soul, in his spirit. And he's vexated because of this betrayal. Truly, truly, I say, one of you will betray me. Now, the disciples have no idea what's going on. As I've said before, they don't all say, well, um, I don't know why Judas has been with us the past three years. It's been clear to us that his prayers have been shoddy, his preaching is shoddy, that he falls asleep most of the time, that he lacks faith. Um, why is he still here? In fact, in the other gospel accounts, the synoptics, we are told that the disciples, when Jesus makes this declaration, respond with, is it me, Lord? Not, is it Judas, is it me? So there's a lot of confusion. Now, one of the disciples is reclining at Jesus' table. And remember, Leonardo da Vinci, as I said last week, has got it entirely wrong. They were not sitting at an ornate table like you might find in one of your own homes. Uh, this was them lying down on a mat, and as one of the disciples wanted to know what was going on, you see Peter motions to him, and this is the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now again, you're going to see that love is the basic message of this uh, sermon. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at Jesus' side, so he would have leaned over almost as though to lean onto Christ's breast there and to ask him this question. And he said, Lord, who is it? Jesus then responds by saying, it's somebody to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. Now there's so much, I think, confusion going on. And they don't even know what this betrayal will mean at this point in time that they still don't really understand. He may have whispered this to John, but maybe John really doesn't understand what's happening. It's easy for us reading back over this event to say, oh, well, why didn't John just say, there he is, Judas. He just told me who it was. He gave the... It may have taken a bit of time for him to give the bread to Judas. There's all sorts of circumstances. All we know is that after this happened, Satan entered into Judas. There was a satanic concurrence between Judas and Satan. Judas was acting on behalf of Satan. Satan was acting in Judas. They were both equally responsible. Judas is responsible. Satan is responsible. And Judas is doing the distinct work of the devil to betray Jesus. The devil does his worst against Christ, not knowing that even the devil, with all of his cunning schemes, and he is cunning, would ultimately fail in what he tried. Christ says, what you are going to do, do quickly. And they don't understand. Maybe it's because he has the money bag and he's going to go and buy some food for the feast. The point is, Judas went out 
And then the whole tenor of the gospel changes. There's a sort of shift now towards how Christ speaks to his disciples. It's like this may have happened in your own life, where there's a group of people and you're all of one mind, but there's this one individual there, and maybe it's a family member, maybe it's a friend, and you say, oh yes, my aunt is coming over, and uh, you know, she is, and you list all the political differences she will have with the people who are there. So you, you have to talk about other things. You just can't bring up the war. And uh, as you don't bring up the war, you start to just talk about anything but things that might cause a bit of discomfort. But then the ant leaves, and then you get to talk about all your health concerns, all your government concerns, and everyone goes, ah, yes. And you just start your back rubbing techniques and your mutual admiration, and all of that stuff goes on. But you know when there's that one person there where you can't say certain things? Judas leaves, and... Christ is all of a sudden able to now speak of even deeper, intimate realities. And that is precisely what he does. He says, now is the Son of Man glorified. Why? Because Judas has gone to do this act of betrayal, indwelt, possessed by Satan. And yet Christ is saying he is glorified and God is glorified in him because Christ knows that his glory is the cross. His glory is the shame of the cross. And God will also be glorified in Christ's shame because that is how salvation will come to the world. Now notice how he speaks to them in verse 33. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Where he is going is to the cross, and he alone can go to the cross. He alone is the Savior. And then after the cross, he will be raised from the dead, and he alone will ascend into the heavenly places. Will many of them go to the cross in a manner of speaking? Yes. Will they all go to be with him in glory? Yes, but not now. They will have work to do. But then Jesus says something most remarkable. A new commandment I give to you. Now, what would this new commandment be? There are ten commandments. And the ten commandments are summed up in love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So what is new? After all, in Leviticus 19, a great chapter on love, you are to love others as God has loved you. So how can Jesus say a new commandment I give to you that you love one another when the Old Testament is replete with references to the fact that you are to love one another? What's new about this? Is this in fact a new commandment? Are there 11 commandments? Or are there 10? Now, that is a question perhaps you wish to answer, or perhaps you're getting wiser than that, and you say, I'm not answering that question, Pastor Mark, because I know your fandangling ways, and uh, if I say 11, you'll say 10, and if I say 10, you'll say 11. I'm not getting involved in that. That's fair. I, I accept that. You know I can get up to all sorts of tricks. So, is this a new commandment? Well, it says it's a new commandment, So what is new about the commandment to love one another when the Old Testament clearly says we are to love one another as God has loved us? The answer is actually quite simple. When God speaks that way in the Old Testament, it invariably refers to Him bringing Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus. 
And that was an act of God's power and His wisdom and His glory and His might and His justice, but it was not an act of sacrifice by God. When Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you, He is bringing in something until this time had not been possible in terms of God's love. And that was, God had not sacrificed Himself. Jesus is now bringing the commandment to an elevated level, so much so that He can call it a new commandment. As I have loved you. And the as I have loved you in context of Christ being glorified is His sacrificial death. All true love is sacrificial. In 1 John 3.16, yes, 1 John 3.16, I don't want you going to John 3.16, all of you Bible scholars out there who know that verse. 1 John 3.16, by this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That is a commentary on John 13.34. This is what love is. It's sacrificial. Now, when we talk about love, we have to understand that sometimes the world gets elements of love right, but not completely. And sometimes even the church gets elements of love right, but not completely. The world tends to emphasize the sort of delight that you have in someone. So you see someone who's beautiful, you see someone who's handsome, you see someone who has qualities, and you say, I'm in love with that person. It's based upon your satisfaction you have in them. The Christian comes along and with good intention says, oh no, you know, the world wants to make it about emotion. But actually, love is an action. And they say, love is things that you do. The problem is, it's neither one nor the other, but both. In fact, true love has three main components. They are absolutely essential to true love. If you do not have all three of these components, you do not have Christian love. And I wish to say to you who are uh, engaged, not yet married, that you are necessarily not at a place of true love because it is impossible for you to yet be there. For those of you who are wishing to love one day, you need to understand what true love is if you would love another person. The first element of true love is always based upon a union between the two persons. That is why the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have true love. Infinite, eternal, unchangeable love because there is a union between the three persons. There always has been, there always will be. And when God sets His love upon us in eternity, it is a love of union. In love, He predestined us in Christ. It's union before anything else. So we have a union with one another. That is how we love one another. We all belong to Jesus Christ. Paul says in Colossians 2, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. This is speaking of his love for the Colossians and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love. That's the union that characterizes true Christian love. No union with another person, no love. That is why the husband-wife union is essential to a marriage. 
because it's the basis for your love for one another. When you are united to your wife, that means you have to love her because of that union. Now, it is not just a union, but also, after that, a satisfaction. That God doesn't just unite us to Jesus Christ, He delights in us. He actually sees His love in us and loves everything that is from God. He loves it in us. He loves His image in us. He loves His graces and gifts in us. He loves anything that's good in us. He delights in us. And true love will always have this element of satisfaction. David in Psalm 16, verse 3, what does he say? He says that as for the saints in the land, as for God's people, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The ones I am joined together with, they are the excellent ones. I have satisfaction in them. I have communion with them. You delight in them. And then and only then, after you have the love of union and the love of satisfaction, do you come to the love of goodwill. That is, true love always has goodwill. That is, good things we do for the other person. And what is that goodwill? It means that love is sacrificial love. That it's forgiving love. That it's pursuing love. That it's earnest love. That it's honest love. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, sacrificial love, as we've seen in Christ's death, is the basis for true love. It's what makes the commandment new. You're prepared to sacrifice time, effort, energy, money, whatever it takes because you love that person. And true love is always forgiving love because if we love others as God and Christ have loved us, then we must forgive others because we have been forgiven. Notice what Paul says in Ephesians 4.24, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. You see what happens when you actually believe the Gospel? You believe that the greatest sins against you do not even compare to your smallest sins towards God. And yet He forgives you for them all. He doesn't say, this and that and the other I can forgive, but not that, that and that one. You are forgiven entirely, completely, because that is the nature of forgiveness. It's not just a sacrificial love. It's not just a forgiving love. It is a pursuing love. And this is actually vitally important for us to understand. Because many of us are reactors. Many of us are decent people. Some of you sitting here are decent people. And you know what I mean by that? I mean that if I were to ask you to do something, you would do it. You are a reactor, a polite reactor. That is the second point for you to come home with today. True definition of love and a true definition of yourself by nature. You are a polite reactor. You will do things when someone asks. But true love is a pursuing love. It means you are looking to love. You are going out of your way to love. You're not just reacting to people asking you to do things. You're saying, can I do something? Do you know what happened to me yesterday? It was most remarkable. And it happens every week, something remarkable. 
Because I lead an exciting life. I get out and about. Talk to people. I was at London Drugs the other day, and uh, some young guy there, he, he looked like a computer nerd. He was. I'm convinced he was a computer nerd. And we got talking. And I said, oh, and uh, do you have a young lady in your life? He goes, I haven't even talked to a girl before. I said, we've got lots of nice young ladies in our church, you know. You don't want to go to a place where they're high on drugs and drunk, and all you need to come find. Have you been to church before? Oh, a few times. I wrote down my name, our website address, I, the church name. I don't know if you'll ever come. You've got to get out and about and do stuff, people. Go to London Drugs. Redeem London Drugs. Besides the coupons. They always ask for the coupons. Do you have any coupons? I always go, no. I always forget them. But it's a pursuing love. So what happened to me yesterday? Well, I woke up. I woke up. And as I tend to do, I struggle out of bed. And there is all sorts of commotion and noise going on outside of my house. There is a young man from the church, and he's gardening. He's fixing everything. The front looks beautiful. They went out to the back. By the time it was all finished, I says, I actually am feeling complete peace and serenity right now. I can't give you his name because he'll lose his heavenly reward. Backwards, it's Trab. But, now he can't charge me after that. But it did remind me, it did remind me, there are things you can do where you go out and you decide you're going to show some love. And you can be zealous about it, but the point is, is it pursuing love? Or is it mere reactionary love? And that's the thing, there's a lot of fake love going on in the church today. It's a polite love. It's a love where we say, yes, we should love one another. But actually the world will know that we are Christ's disciples by our love that we have for one another. One more uh, thing that happened yesterday that was even perhaps a bit more exciting. And believe me, when you've got ten Joneses in one household, there's no shortage of exciting things. My dad, I don't know why he thought this would be a good idea, but it was uh, last night, and he's not one to give money away easily, and he decides he wants to play a prank on Barb. I don't know why. Again, let's leave the psychoanalyzing for another day. But he goes up to Josh and says, I'll give you 20 bucks, and Josh has to come down on the stairs, and my dad's going to pretend to throw some punches. He's going, no, Papa, no, Papa, and we're going to see if Barb reacts in the kitchen. It must have been a slow evening, right? And so Josh comes down and then my dad's, you know, going after him and he's yelling and I'm going, what on earth is going on? And uh, Barb doesn't react. <laughs> Not because she doesn't love Josh. Oh, she loves Josh. But she can see my dad's punches are not landing. And she can see out the corner of his eye. I says to my dad, listen, next time you've actually got to hit the boy. $20 has to be earned. And that's not all that dissimilar from the love that goes on in the church. 
Oh, we like to make a scene and we like to pretend like we're doing something, but we're not actually landing any blows. We're getting close, but we're not actually loving. And that's very sad, isn't it? Now, I could go on of the aspects of goodwill to one another, but you'll see there's something quite shocking that happens after this. Peter says to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterwards. And Peter did ultimately end up being crucified upside down. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Peter is prepared to show the consummate expression of love for his Savior. And Christ says, Not only will you not lay down your life for me right now, but you will actually deny me three times, even saying, I don't even know the man. Pride comes before a fall. And Peter still didn't quite understand the seed of every sin remained in his heart. And this is a humbling thing for you to think about today as you sit here as the seed of every known sin is in your heart and it is only time and circumstance and God's restraining grace that has kept you from falling a thousand times in the most horrific ways. What is the difference between you and Hitler? What really is the difference? You came into this world with a human nature capable of all sorts of monstrosities. It's God's grace. It's God's grace. And Peter here doesn't understand yet that even though he did love Christ, he was still a weak, proud, ignorant man who would have to learn the hard way. Now, what can we say by way of application, just by way of closing? Think about all of the relationships that have been ruined just in the church because of lack of love. How many false relationships there are where we say we love, but we can't overlook sins. We say we love, but we can't seek the person out with a pursuing love, with a sacrificial love. Let me ask the question, is there, is there inadequate gospel blessings so that you could ever justify not loving another one of Christ? Do you not have enough resources to say, I can actually love this person? Is the lack in God? Has God not showed you enough so that you can say, you know what, I could love this person if God just gave me a few more blessings, then I could do it. Can you say that? Is there actually any reason for not loving one of Christ's? The answer is no. Because the reason that is given to you is the highest reason. Love one another as I, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, have willingly and sacrificially and forgivingly and pursuingly loved you. And so, what is the cure for any relationship? The cure for any relationship is love. What happened to Peter? He denies his Master three times. What does Christ do when He restores him? What is Christ after when He restores Peter? Peter, do you love Me? Yes, Lord, You know that I love You. What does He say? Feed My sheep. 
There's an act of goodwill. Peter, do you love me again? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? And Peter, overcome with grief, said, Lord, you know that I love you. And again, feed my sheep. Peter was restored by love. And I think the difference between Peter and Judas was simply this. Both betrayed him. Both at the time of the betrayal, when Jesus was betrayed by Peter and Judas, simultaneously, I think it's fair to say that Judas did at some point in his life love Christ. I have no doubt about that. But here's the difference. I think Judas loved Christ only after Judas loved Judas. That Christ could only have ever been second And as imperfect as Peter's love was, Christ ultimately would have come first. And that's the difference between a Judas and a Peter. It's not that you say you love Christ. It's not that you sit here and tip your hat to Jesus. It is that you love Christ more than you love yourself. Otherwise, you could be a respectable apostle that nobody knows is a betrayer Because you say you love Jesus, but Jesus is always second. Jesus is always third. He is never first. And when you are told that Jesus laid down His life for all of your sins, that He is going to raise you up at the last day, that He's going to give you eternal life forever and ever, there is no other place Jesus can be in your life except first place. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank You for the Word of God and for Christ's love, which we pray will be reciprocated with love not only for Christ, but for each other. May the world know that we are Your disciples by our love that we have for one another. Amen.